was out looking in my uh, garden yesterday, getting ready. There was a group that was coming by for a, a plant tour later in the afternoon. And I was looking at one of the rose blooms, and it had a funny shape to it. I thought that was kind of odd, so I didn't think much of it. I took a picture of it and a couple other ones, and I went inside. And I was looking closer at the picture, and I saw the reason for why it had a funny shape. There was a beetle at the center of the flower chewing away and, and, and killing the flower. I thought, well, that's disappointing. So I went outside and I got rid of the beetle. And I was thinking about that in connection with the passage this morning. Why are things that are beautiful in this world spoiled? And it comes back to this passage. For that matter, why do roses have thorns? Why do thistles pop up in our yard? This passage. Why is there conflict in marriages? Why is childbirth such a painful process, though uh, joyous as well? Why do we sweat when we work outside because of this passage? Why do we do things that displease God? Why do we grow old? Why do we die? Because of what we find in Genesis chapter 3. When we look at verse 1, we see the beginning of the temptation that the serpent directs toward Eve. People argue about what the serpent was. Was it just the animal? Was it just Satan? Was it a combination of the two? I think Satan was indwelling the serpent and deceiving Adam and Eve in that form. Uh, based on other passages of scripture where the serpent is also used as a name for Satan, for Lucifer, for the angel who fell when he rebelled against God. And he asked this question, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Notice the way that he phrases it. It's not... Did God say you can't eat from that tree over there? It's, did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees in front of you? He makes God's command sound more burdensome and more oppressive and more unreasonable than it really is. Eve's response is likewise interesting. She says, we can eat from all of these except for that one over there, we're not supposed to eat from it, and we're not supposed to touch it. Which raises the question, why did the command change from chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, to what she says in chapter 3 and verse 3? Because what God actually said to Adam was, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. But she said, not only don't eat from it, but she said, don't touch it. And there is speculation as to whether this was her invention or whether it was Adam's. I tend to think that it was Adam's addition to God's command. I think there's an important point for us to recognize from this verse. It is dangerous for us to add to God's word. We say, but... But if we set up boundaries, if God says, here's the thing that you're supposed to do, and we say, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over here, 
and I'm going to uh, make sure I don't get close to that point, we think that that would be the path of safety, right? But when we contradict God's word by adding more things to it or by taking things away from us, it, as Satan is about to do, we are not honoring God's word and we are not following God's word. I don't know what Adam was thinking when he said to Eve, here's what God has said. But what he said to Eve was not what God had said, but what God had said plus something else. That is not necessarily the reason that Eve gave in to Satan's temptation, but it certainly didn't help the situation, did it? Because what's Satan trying to do? Satan is saying, God's unreasonable and oppressive and all that sort of thing. And what is going on here is reinforcing that in Eve's mind. Why would God say I can't eat from it? Why would God say I can't touch it? And now Satan's going to take away from God's word. Just as Adam and Eve had done wrong by adding to God's word, now Satan's going to take away from God's word to say that it's not true. You surely will not die. God said to Adam, you eat it, you will die. Satan says, no you won't. It won't happen. God's trying to hide a good thing from you. Your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. But what would really be different for them? They already knew what was good, what God had said, and what was evil, what God had said they should not do. So what would really be different? They would know it by experience, even as Satan himself did. Not just that is evil because God said don't do it, but that is evil because God said don't do it, and I did it. And Satan said nothing about the consequences that would follow. He just said, here's what you'll get. You'll know good and evil. You'll know it by experience. You'll be as wise or wiser than God himself. Notice the things that Eve was drawn to by this fruit. Just a quick point, it wasn't an apple tree. People say it was an apple tree. At the very least, we don't know what kind of a tree it was. It was a tree, and it had a fruit on it, and they weren't supposed to eat of it. That's all the text says, so I think that's important to remember. But what, what do we see about the tree? It was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. I think people have appropriately pointed out parallels between this and the worldliness that John warns about in 1 John chapter 2. John says, watch out for the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It tasted good, it looked good, it would make her satisfy her pride in that she would be wise. So in reality, the temptations that we face today are the exact same sort of temptations that Satan brought back then. Satan's not particularly creative. He does the same things now that he did then. And our response now should be the same that they should have had then, which was to say, what God has said is true, and I'm going to obey it, and I'm not going to listen to your lies. 
but that's not what they did. She took from the fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Why is Adam blamed as the one who is responsible for the fall? Because it clearly says the woman ate the fruit first. I think Adam is blamed as being responsible for the fall because he was right there and he didn't stop her, and he was right there and he did the exact same thing. And God had spoken to him face to face and said, here's what's going to happen if you do this. So he should have stopped her, and if he couldn't stop her, he should have not done it himself. But he did neither of those things. He didn't keep her from doing it, and he went right along with it himself. People have talked about sometimes about how God established an order in creation, that it was God and then man, and then God created a companion for man, and then the beasts of the field were below the dominion of man and woman. But we see this turned on its head. The serpent telling the woman what to do, telling the husband what to do, telling God what to do. And much of sin is connected with rejecting God's order of things. What was the result of their sin? Their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked and they made themselves coverings. When it says their eyes were opened, it's not in the sense of Saul who was blinded on the road to Damascus and then was given back his sight. Adam and Eve could see each other. So what had changed? What had changed was their sense, they now experienced a sense of shame and a sense of guilt and a sense of condemnation before God that they had never known before. That's what had changed. Not who they were, not their state, but their relationship with God and with one another. And we're going to see that. They're going to hide from God. They're going to turn on each other. And the, the poison of sin begins to corrupt everything in their experience. Verse 8. They heard God and they hid. Fascinating statement. Genesis 1 and 2 has just got finished up saying, God made everything. Think you can really hide from the God who made everything? And yet, sin drives us to do things that, when we think about them, make no sense and will not accomplish anything. But that sense of shame and guilt and nakedness before God drives us to try to hide from God, even though it is impossible. But God still speaks to man. The Lord God called the man and said, where are you? God wasn't unaware of where Adam and Eve were hiding. It's kind of like if you're a kid and you break a dish in the kitchen and you go and hide in the corner of the room and your parents walk in. They know both who did the thing and where you are. And when they say, where are you? That's an opportunity to admit your guilt and say, I did it, and move on. But that's not what Adam and Eve did. 
Adam says, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that? How could you possibly have this sense of shame and guilt and nakedness unless you had done the thing that I told you not to do? Again, another opportunity for Adam to confess his sin and to receive God's forgiveness. But what does Adam do? The woman, she gave it to me and I ate. As though that was some sort of an excuse. Adam, you didn't do your job. Why do you think blaming her is going to get you out of God's condemnation? You're still at fault. But sin drives us to do foolish things. To make excuses, to point fingers at people around us. Going back to the example of kids. Sitting in the back seat of the car. One does something that aggravates the other. The other one yells or hits or does something else in return. What's the response? They made me do it. No, they didn't. You chose to do it. And we either bear responsibility and admit our guilt and confess our sin and receive forgiveness, or we wallow in our sin and remain condemned. The Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? The woman said, serpent, wasn't me. And people go into all sorts of creative explanations about could the serpent have talked and, and why did Eve listen to him and all these other sorts of things. And people get into these huge philosophical discussions about in a perfect world, how could there possibly ever come to be such a thing as sin? And is it God's fault? And all of those sorts of things. And notice that the passage does not address those issues. All it says is, here's how it was. Here's the temptation. Here's the sin. Here's the consequences. I'm not saying we can't think about those things, but I'm saying the Bible doesn't answer it in this passage. The emphasis and the focus is on why is this world broken because sin ruins everything. And so now, in a reverse approach, God had said, Why'd you do it, Adam? Why'd you do it, Eve? Why'd you do it, serpent? And in a reverse pattern, he's going to say, Here's your punishment, here's your punishment, here's your punishment. What we call the curse of sin. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Again, there's speculation about what this means, but it seems that the serpent was more upright, and now it was no longer upright. It would crawl on the ground. The statement about eating dust, again, people sometimes get hung up on this and say, well, snakes don't actually eat dust. But this is a, a symbol of judgment, of defeat, of condemnation. And it's interesting that this persists even to a time when we would expect that all of these things would be done. In the context of the new heavens and the new earth, it says in Isaiah 65, 25, The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And so perhaps in the same way that Jesus, after he 
rose from the dead, still had the marks of the crucifixion as a reminder of the work that he had accomplished, it seems that even in the new heavens and earth, when we would expect everything to be exactly put back the way it was before the Garden of Eden, the snake still crawls, the snake still eats dust as a reminder of the sin that led to the crucifixion. And so God restores everything, but it's not put back exactly the way that it was. came across that verse when I was looking at some commentaries on this passage, and I thought it was a very uh, interesting uh, point to think about. Usually we skip that verse and we go straight to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Paul makes a point about this in the book of Galatians, about the fact that it's not generally every offspring of the woman, but rather that it was the specific offspring of Eve who was um, going to bring salvation to the world. It says in uh, Galatians 3, verse 15, or 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It is not saying to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. And so we see a connection there uh, in the promises made to Abraham and this promise that's made here. And when God speaks this to Eve, the specific one that is in mind is not generally every last descendant of Eve. It is specifically one descendant of Eve, and that is Christ. So Satan is going to bruise Christ on the heel, but Christ would bruise Satan on the head. That's not explained in this passage. All that's said is God's going to do something about this situation, but we get the sense that it may be a long time yet in the future. This also raises the question for us, what was it that Adam and Eve had to believe in order to really trust God and be one of his people? And at its most basic level, it was simply believe what God has said. Obviously, what God has said was added to significantly between then and between now and made more and more clear that the one in whom we would believe is Christ. But even at that point, Adam and Eve had the opportunity to believe in the one who would undo, fix, destroy the works of the serpent or to continue to go their own way. Verse 16, God says to the woman, your pain in childbirth will be multiplied your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. There will be a, even in perhaps one of the greatest joys that a woman can experience, that of giving birth to a child, there would be pain and suffering. In one of the closest, the closest possible human relationship, even in marriage, there would be conflict. And the reason for both of those things is because of this curse of sin. And then God comes to Adam. Because you listen to the voice of your wife. Not that he should never hear what she's saying to him or take it into account. He's not saying, don't listen to your wife if she gives you good advice. He's saying, 
because you didn't fulfill your responsibility to lead and to rule and to make sure that she obeyed what I had commanded you, because you've listened to the voice of your wife in that sense, how do we know? Because the next phrase is, because you've eaten from the tree, which I said, don't eat from it. Cursed is the ground. In toil you'll eat of it. Thorns and thistles it will grow. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam didn't die immediately, but he began to die in that moment. Technically, I suppose we could say when they first took the bite of the fruit. Just going back to what I was saying, look at the flower, there's a beetle in there. I've gotten stuck a number of times in the last few weeks working on those shrubs. Why? Again, because of sin. And that is the world in which we live. Beauty set alongside destruction set alongside constant reminders of the pervasive impact and effects of sin. I say, I don't necessarily see it every day. But we do if we think about it. Why do we say the things that we say that are hurtful or unkind to people that we ought to love, to our own families? Because we're sinners. Why do we know that God has said to do certain things and we say, I'm not going to do them? Because we're sinners. And we're not just sinners in the sense that um, I do sin. That's true. But we're sinners simply because of the fact that we're human beings born into a world after Adam and Eve sinned, Adam being our representative. People don't like this idea. They want to explain it away. They want to blame God for it. They want to say it's unjust and cruel. But whose fault does God say that this is? I gave you a command, and you broke the command, and here are the consequences. But even in that moment of heartbreak and horror and death, we come to the end of the chapter. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of of all living. There's a, a hope, a looking forward to the fact that even though they would die, they would have children, and those children would have children, the human race would not be extinguished. There is care in what happens in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And we have here a not spelled out, but probably in anticipation of the sacrifices that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Because animals had to die for God to take their skins and clothe Adam and Eve. Yet another reminder of the cost of sin. And in it, at the same time, God's care and concern and recognizing that people were ashamed and guilty and naked and needed covering and providing that for them. 
And then we see God's mercy further in the last few verses here. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. You say, how in the world would that be merciful of God to take away from them the possibility of extended life? And the answer is, immortality in a broken world is not a blessing, it's a curse. People have had different conceptions of this in literature and film and so on. But if you could live forever, but you kept growing older and older, if you could live forever, but everyone else around you died. If you could live forever, but sin was still a part of your existence. That would be no blessing. And so God sent them out from the home that he had created for them. And as sin progressively gets worse, even that home will be destroyed in the flood that we see a few chapters later in the book of Genesis and we see the beginnings of things that we think are amazing in terms of civilization, of cities, of inventions, of all of these different things. And yet even all of those things are corrupted by murder, by hatred, by fighting, by pride and rebellion against God. And so Genesis 1 and 2 sets before us a picture of of a beautiful and a wonderful world in which God has provided and filled the earth with everything there is. And then Genesis 3, we see the explanation for why we go from Genesis 1 and 2 to what we saw in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is short. Life is frustrating and puzzling. Life ends for the righteous as well as the wicked. And so in this passage, we see that sin ruins everything, but we see also that God gives hope. But the main focus of this is that sin ruins everything. So what's your attitude towards sin? Sometimes we call a lie a little white lie. Satan's lie plunged the entirety of humanity into a, an experience of futility, an experience of heartbreak. That's just a little lie. Blaming someone else for something that they've done, we say, well, everybody does that, right? Better to throw them under the bus than me get caught for the thing I did. That's a sign of the wickedness of our hearts. You ever argue with your husband or your wife? Ever go outside on a day when it's 90 and sweat and wish that it wasn't that way? You ever wonder why work sometimes becomes such a drudgery? All these things ought to remind us 
that sin ruins everything, but if we take a step back, it ought to remind us that God's word is true. Because what did God say was going to happen? If you do this, dying, you will die. So at a most basic level, do you believe God's word? Adam and Eve added to it, denied it, disobeyed it. We have the opportunity, by God's grace, to believe it, to agree with it, and to do what it says. I wouldn't be doing my job if I failed to make the connection between Genesis 3.15 and what the New Testament makes clear, that that promise was fulfilled in Christ. And so the hope that we have, that is just a glimpse here, and becomes a, a full-scale picture of God's glory in the person of Christ is that sin corrupts and ruins and kills you. But in Christ, there is forgiveness for that sin. Not because you're an awesome person, because we're not. Not because we can build our way to God, because we can't. I see them trying to do that in the next few chapters, and God says, you can't do that, I'm not going to let you. We can't build our way to God, we can't be good enough, we cannot achieve what we owe God and pay back the debt. But Jesus could, and Jesus did. And so the question is, do we say, I'm going to quit trying to reach God on my own? Perhaps I should say, have you said, I'm going to quit trying to reach God on my own? I'm going to say, Jesus did it in my place, and I'm going to turn to him and put my trust in him, turn away from my sin, and turn to God to serve him and to wait for his son from heaven. Jesus, who delivers us from coming wrath, wrath that God will pour out on the world because of what we see in Genesis chapter 3, but wrath from which God's people will be spared, those who are trusting in him. So are you trusting in him today? Do you see the horror of sin and the glory of God's deliverance? May we not forget these truths. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we don't deserve your mercy toward us. We don't deserve your gracious work in our lives. We don't like to think of ourselves this way, but I think of the song that, sa song that says, Would you devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And sometimes people say we shouldn't talk that way because it will uh, make us feel worse about ourselves than we ought. But Lord, sometimes we feel far too, too, far too good about ourselves and we don't see the horror of our condition apart from you. I think of the, uh, the poem that Edgar Allan Poe wrote about the conqueror worm that writhes and kills and destroys, and that he saw as the hero of man's story, but that's not true. Death is a worm, a serpent, 
something that can sting and bite, but not for the one who trusts in you. Lord, may we trust in the hope that you offer to us in Christ. Not in ourselves. Not in the things that we make up, but the truth of the words that you have spoken. Lord, help us not to add to them and say that it's Jesus plus something else. Help us not to take away from them and to say Jesus is not the only way to God. Lord, help us to take exactly what you have said and believe it and trust in it. There is one way to God, and it's through Christ, and that is the only hope that can deliver us from the misery of sin. Lord, help us to have that hope this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand, please. We will sing together.